0: All right, so fun fact about me, I was once part of the worst drama program in the history of all high schools. I was once part of a very bad high school drama. I'll say it, it was Lighthouse Christian Academy's high school drama program and it was not a good drama program. I guess if you liked the if, if if drama program is like the drama of kids not memorizing their lines or the drama between teachers and students or props malfunctioning or the sound system not working if that's the kind of drama that you're looking for in your drama program then this was a pretty good drama program. But if you like the drama of the stage, actually watching people perform, then it was a very bad drama program. I remember one time I was the sound guy for the play, which was Sarah Plain and Tall. And Sarah Plain and Tall is like a a mail order bride who's Plain and Tall, I guess, and her name is Sarah. And there's a scene where she's supposed to come on the train and everybody's on the train station, like, ah, Sarah, it's, pa, it's Sarah, plain and tall, is coming to be our mother, and all this stuff. And the train was pulling into the station. I was doing the sound effects. This was back in the, way back in the days of cassette tapes. And so I had a cassette tape with the sound of a train. But unfortunately, I put the cassette tape in backwards. Like, I put side B in (laughs) instead of side A. And so... They said, Pa, Sarah, plain and tall, she's coming on the train. And then (laughs) ACDC.
1: Dirty deeds, done dirt cheap.
0: I guess Sarah was touring with ACDC, I don't know. Um, So that's one story from the drama program. The story I actually want to tell, though, is a play that I was not a part of, but my friend Josh and my friend Davey were in this play, and this was the worst play ever put on in the history of high school, drama. And it was a play, everybody familiar with Narnia, the Silver, the Silver Chair is a Narnia book. So this was a play of Narnia, The Silver Chair. And my friend Josh played Aslan, the great lion king of Narnia, only he was in like an outfit that a mom had very graciously sewed for him. He looked like the cowardly lion. He just did. Or like a really bad lion school mascot. He did not inspire terror and awe the way that you want Aslan to do. Um, and then my friend Davey was playing Diggory, the young boy who's transported to Narnia. And he sees the, the creation of Narnia and all this stuff. And the first two acts of the play were actually really good. Like everybody was involved in the drama and it works. And this, everything went off without a hitch, and and it was just a good story. Those are the parts, however, before he actually gets transported to the magical land of Narnia. Once Young Diggory gets transported to the magical land of Narnia, that is when the play began to go off the rails. And what happened was, my friend Josh came out as Aslan in his Cowardly Lion costume, and his dialogue was something like, Grr, grr, roar, roar, Narnia, I bring thee into existence, or something like that. And then it's like the creation story of Narnia. So Diggory's been transported to like prehistory of Narnia, everything's black, and then Aslan comes out and he creates Narnia. And that's what was supposed to happen. So Josh comes out in his cowardly lion costume. He says, like, I create thee, Narnia, and then all these other poor like high school middle schoolers come out sort of crawling in their, their lame animal costumes and are there growling and roaring, and it just didn't really capture the, the magic of what you want from the creation myth of Narnia. Then things went really bad, though, because Josh, for whatever reason, as Aslan, so so we're in act three, right? But he just messes up. He forgets his line, and he says a line from act five, which is fine. Like, obviously, nobody in the audience has read the script. Like, they could have sort of ad-libbed their way out of that mistake. But what happens is everyone else who's in the play just goes with Josh, just keys off of that line, the line from act five. They just start doing the scene from Act 5. And they skip most of Act 3, all of Act 4, and just go straight into Act 5. Basically all the stuff in Narnia. I don't know if you've read the books, the Narnia books, but one thing that's really important in those books is the time that the characters spend in the land of Narnia. (laughs) But they just manage to skip all of that. But that actually wasn't the worst thing that happened in that play. The worst thing that happened was, so they just basically didn't do the play. They just skipped it. And they basically skipped the last scene. And the last scene is a scene where young Diggory, he has a magic apple that he's gotten from Narnia. And the magic apple is supposed to uh, heal his mother. Like at the beginning of the story, we find out his mother is sick. She's dying. And then he goes to Narnia. He has his adventure. And he comes back with this magical apple that is supposed to be able to, Heal his mother. And so, what's supposed to happen in the play is he's supposed to go off stage and say, I'm going to my mom. And then he gives her the apple. And then he's supposed to come running back, like, Polly, Polly, I gave the apple to my mom. She ate it. She's all better. She's well. Like that's, and that's the end of that's like the big emotional climax of the play. And that's exactly what my friend Davey playing Diggory did. He took the apple, he went off stage for a minute. And then he came back running on, he he nailed his line, he put the the appropriate emotion into it. Polly, Polly, I gave the apple to my mom, she's she's better, she's better. The problem was he did not put down the apple. (laughs) He just came running out with the apple that he was supposed to have just fed to his mom in his hand, saying, Polly, Polly, my mom, she ate the apple, she's all better. Now, Davey did realize he, he had made a mistake. He looked at the apple, he paused, and then he tried to ad lib his way out of it. And he said, And I also picked this magic apple, and I don't need it. And then, <laughs> so that was his way. That was his way out of that. If you're going to be an actor, you have to know not just your part but you have to know the story that you are in. Both of those mistakes were bad mistakes, but they could have actually recovered, I think, from both of them if they had had an eye towards the larger story. But instead everybody, you know, if you've seen a bad high school play, this happens a lot, everybody's so obsessed with whatever's going on, their own uh, problems, that, you know, Just I just have to memorize my lines. They lose. Sight of the larger picture. Whether you're playing Aslan or you're playing squirrel number two, you need to know what story you're in. As Christians, we need to know what story we're in. If you want to understand your life, what you're doing, how to obey Jesus, how to give yourself to the things of God, you have to know the story that you are a part of, the big story, the story that's bigger than you. And I think for a lot of us, our conception of that story is about as big as, well, I gave my life to Jesus, and he saved me, and I'm glad. It's like an actual very small story between you and Jesus. And that's true. I'm not trying to take that away from you. But what's also true is that we are all part of a giant canvas that God is painting, a a giant story that God is telling. We are all part of a people that God is working to redeem and to call to himself. You're not just in the story of Jesus redeeming you. You're in the story of Jesus redeeming a people from the beginning of history, which should be an encouragement to us. Which should be an encouragement to us as a church that we're, we're part of a bigger thing, right? And so you probably noticed, I think we need to adjust the, the contrast on this epic picture here, but we're starting a new series today called Faith of Our Fathers, and we are going to be telling the story of history from Adam to Jesus. And... You may or may not know, Church of the King is a reformed church, and probably most of you know that, and your leadership is reformed, and I don't care for today's purposes whether you're reformed, but just know one of the things that—there's all kinds of things. You've heard Jake, you know, on the days where we baptize babies, he'll talk about some of the the things that make us distinct there— And why we do that and give us a little lesson in covenant theology. There's there's all kinds of things that make the Reformed tradition the Reformed tradition. But one of the things that makes the Reformed tradition the Reformed tradition is that we have a very unified view of the Scripture. We see the Scripture as telling one big story, one story that all goes together. And so, for example, when, when we read stories of God doing things in the Old Testament, We don't think like, well, that's a different God. I mean, I hope nobody thinks that. But we don't think, uh, ah, that was God then and now he's totally different. No, it's like the same God that rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, the same God that split the Red Sea, the same God that brought Abraham into the promised land. That's our God. And more than that, those are our people. Those are our people. When you read the stories of Israel and of the people in the Old Testament, those are the people that God is calling to himself. And they are, they are our ancestors, right? Like we're, we're God's people, they were God's people. And it's not that nothing's changed or nothing's different, but it's all one big story. And so when we, when we, when we think about Abraham as a father in the faith. He's our father. When we think about Moses as like the great mediator and leader of the people, it's like he was the mediator and leader of, our, of us. Isaiah was our prophet. That's not just a bunch of like history for people who are Jewish. It's one big thing, one ongoing unfolding work that we are a part of. And so, as Christians, we get the privilege of seeing the story, the big story, the story throughout history of God redeeming a people. I think for some of us, this could change your life because understanding the story, understanding the story, the big story that you're a part of, seeing how God works in that big story over and over and over again, seeing the things he's done and kind of owning them. Well, you begin to understand better the little story of your life. When you see the patterns of how God's, God has worked through history, you can really learn things about how he works with you. I think there's two other reasons why we need to know the big story of God's work throughout history, drawing people to himself. Uh, number one, if, if we don't know that story, we can't learn from the bad stuff. And it is a privilege to learn from the bad stuff, to learn from other people's mistakes. I I just had to go on a a drive down 69, not too long ago, and you drive past police cars that have pulled other people over. Or sometimes you drive past people who have wrecked their cars. And what do you tend to do? If you're me, you're probably going 90 miles an hour, and then you see something like that, and you slow down to, to 70 or whatever. And you feel kind of guilty, like, well, they had a misfortune, they got a ticket or they wrecked their car, but I guess I can learn from that mistake and not do that. Well, there is a smug, proud way to learn from other people's mistakes. There's a way that says, oh, that would never happen to me. But also, there's a really good way to learn from other people's mistakes. One of the things I love about Bart Blaylock is he doesn't mind telling kids his story. And I won't tell your story right now, but you don't mind people knowing your story because you want other people to learn from your stupid mistakes, which is awesome, which is great. God wants us to learn from the mistakes of his people in the past. Uh, Hebrews 3.15 says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the New Testament, where they're like, hey, look at the people who did bad things in the Old Testament and learn their lessons. Like they saw God work, they hardened their hearts, they all died in the desert, don't be like them. We, we've seen Jesus, we've seen something better than they have, so our punishment's gonna be worse. So we wanna know the stories of the history of God's people so that we can learn from them, learn from the net bad stuff. We also want to take encouragement from the good stuff. If we don't know the stories of the history of God's people, we won't be able to be encouraged that the God who, in the very same breath that he disciplined Adam and Eve for bringing sin into the world, promised a Savior, that's our God. The God who gave Abraham a son when he was as good as dead, that's our God. The God who the Israelites were had their backs against the Red Sea. They were facing death or re-enslavement at the hands of the Egyptians. And God opened up a path for them to escape and then brought the waves down on their enemies. That's our God. The God who worked through history to bring Jesus, the high priestly prophet king. That's our God. And that is a comfort for us as a church, a comfort for us as individuals when we go through things. As Christians, we, we need to know the story that we're in. So we're beginning a series, as I said, called Faith of Our Fathers, which is going to take us through the history of God's work to redeem and call a people to himself. Basically, from, we'll go from Adam to Jesus. If I convinced everybody that it is good to go through that story, I'm going to need at least one woo. I'm going to need at least one enthusiastic, genuine, sincere woo. Yes, awesome. So I just need to lay a little bit more pipe before we get going. We're gonna be talking about God's story, bringing people, to himself. There is a pattern in the story that we're going to see over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again. And we want to have that pattern fixed in our minds. The pattern is this. Number one, God does something. God enacts his will in history. Something big happens. Number two, God explains why he did what he did. He interprets himself. So sometimes you can reverse the order on those two. Sometimes he'll say, I'm going to do a thing and here's why, and then he'll do it. But I'd say even more often, he does a thing, he acts his will, and then he backs up and he explains, ah, here's why I did what I did. And the third part of the pattern is we, or the people that are around at the time, respond. And there's basically only two responses. We respond with faith or we respond without faith. God acts, God interprets, we respond. God acts, God interprets, we respond. That is the pattern of like all human history, again and again and again. It's like the biggest thing you can imagine, the broadest, the the gospel story, right? That's the pattern, God sends Jesus into the world, Jesus dies, he lives again, He's our king. He paid for our sins. God does that. He just enacts his will. Big. And then God interprets. He has his apostles and the people that wrote the scriptures, the people that wrote the New Testament say, hey, Jesus, you know, he did all this stuff. Well, here's why. And then to this day, we all have an opportunity to respond to that with faith or without faith. So that's like, that's the big story of history. But then you look at all the little stories of history and it's the same thing. God acts. David is anointed king. God interprets. Hey, David. So you're a man after my own heart. And I want you to have someone on the throne forever. You're actually a type of the Messiah that I'm going to ascend. And your lineage is going to live on forever. God acts, God interprets, and then David responds with faith. He is a man after God's own heart. He responds well, right? the one of the reasons, as I've said, that we want to observe this pattern as we go is because it's a pattern that happens in our lives all the time. God acts. You got passed over for a raise at work. God interprets. Maybe you're talking to a friend or a pastor or you're just thinking and praying and you realize, you know, I was putting my faith in getting that raise instead of God. You respond. You decide to have faith. Like, you know what? God can provide for me. I don't need that raise. It's okay. God has other things for me. Or you can, of course, respond without faith. Become bitter. Whatever. There's a million ways to respond without faith. So one more big question, just uh, doing a lot of stuff to kind of set things up, so bear with me today, but we need to know if that's the pattern throughout history, God acts, God interprets, we respond with faith or without faith, it would help to know what faith is. What is faith? Well, what's the most famous chapter in all of scripture on faith? Hebrews 11, that is correct. So let's go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews is a book that is all about this pattern that, I, that I've been talking about. Um, Hebrews is a complicated book. I don't know how many of you, how many of you feel like you just understand everything there is to understand about the book of Hebrews? Okay, me neither. But basically a good way, I think, to think about Hebrew. How many of you have seen, have seen The Princess Bride? You remember the part where the, 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 the good guy's talking to the bad guy and the good guy says, you're smart, are you? And then the bad guy says, let me put it this way. Ever heard of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato? Morons. <laughs> That's actually the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is like, ever heard of Moses? Ever heard of angels? Ever heard of the Torah? Ever heard of the sacrificial system? Jesus is better. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the culmination. And so, like that passage from Romans we read earlier, if people were disciplined for not putting their faith when they had that stuff, then you better believe God's going to take his son coming into the world seriously. And you can cling to the promises of Jesus better. But Hebrews is exactly what we've been talking about. It, it, It talks a lot about this pattern of God acting, God interpreting throughout history, leading up to Jesus that's all a side point for today, though. Let's just read in Hebrews 11, which is, which is when the author of Hebrews begins to go through and talk about all these people who, were, who, re, who responded with faith. And so Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is faith? We've got two verses actually in that sixth verse passage that sort of provide a definition. Verse one, most obviously, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But there's also verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must, A, believe that he exists, B, believe that he rewards those who seek him. So what is faith? Faith is, even though you do not see God with your eyes, you believe and you act like he exists and he is who he says he is. He's good. If you, let, me, let me ask you a question. Did you act like God existed this week? Did you act like God existed when you drove in your car, when you were stuck in traffic, when you were talking to your spouse? Did you act like God existed and like there was a reward on the line? So let's go back to our little pattern thing, right? God acts, God interprets. This happens in our lives all the time. And then we respond with faith, which means we respond as though he exists, as though he's good. We respond with that being the motivating assumption. Or we don't. We respond as though he does not exist or as though he exists and is not good and will not reward us. Okay, that is all just pipe that we've been laying so that we can actually talk about what we actually want to talk about. And I'm only going to very briefly begin to get into the history of God's people today. I think next week, Ben is going to preach to us on Noah. So I'm going to try and take us from creation to Noah. and I'm going to try and do it really fast. Why don't we look at Hebrews 11 again So Hebrews 11, we're actually going to be using that for this series because it's a great summation of God's work throughout history and people's faithful responses to it. So let's read Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 3 again. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God... And by the way, if anyone ever asks you, can Christians believe in evolution, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, is an interesting verse for that. But let's talk about the creation story real quick. Let's, let's put it through our, the, our, little, our little pattern. God acts. There is nothing, and then there is something. Boom. God creates the world. He creates everything. And then God interprets he tells the man and the woman, hey, I created you, and here's why. I made this beautiful world. I made it for you to enjoy. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be multiply. I want you to be multiply. I want you to multiply. I want you to subdue the earth and rule it. I made you to enjoy all this creation, to rule it, to subdue it, to take care of it for me. That's what I want you to do. That's the interpretation of why I did what I just did, why you're even here. And I want you to do it in obedience to me. I want you to obey me. So do not eat from this tree. So God acts, God interprets. What happens? I hope we all know the story. What's that? They eat from the tree. That's right. They choose to go with an alternate interpretation. Satan comes along in the form of a serpent and he's like, hey, guys. That interpretation that God gave you for his, it's actually completely wrong. And they're like, okay, cool. That tree looks good. We will, Satan says we will not surely die. God said we will die. Satan says we won't. We're going to go with Satan. They eat from the tree. They bring sin. They bring death into the world. And then, as I've already said, God in his kindness acts again begins a process of discipline, of punishment for mankind, but also a process of redemption. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which is a promise that the offspring of this couple that Jesus Christ will one day come, that he will crush the head of the serpent. So this sets into motion God's redemptive plan for history. But it also sets up the dichotomy that we've been talking about the whole time, those who have faith and those who do not. And the first big test case of that dichotomy is Adam's children, Cain and Abel. And uh, if anybody who's ever been to Sunday school knows that one, right? Hebrews verse uh, 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. His gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Cain responded without faith. We don't know the particulars of exactly how that worked. But we know because the author of Hebrews interprets it for us here. Cain made a sacrifice that was without faith. Abel made a sacrifice to God, trusting in God's promises, trusting that God existed, that he's a rewarder of those who serve him. God, of course, accepted Abel's sacrifice. Cain was jealous. Cain murdered Abel. But the beautiful thing here. That the author of Hebrews says, Abel is still speaking to us today. If you are here, like you, you out there, you hearing this, Abel is speaking to you. He's saying that you should have faith. God has acted again and again and again and again and again and again for each one of us. And mostly he's interpreted those actions, maybe some of them a little bit more, some of them a little bit less, some of them in ways we like, some of them in ways we don't. But even if you don't have a specific interpretation, you always know if God's acting in your life that he is doing it for your sanctification, doing it for your betterment, that he is leading you to something good. You know that he exists, that he's superintending it, and that he rewards those who seek him. We have to respond to our circumstances with faith. And I know that's kind of a simple application for all the, the setup that I did, but that is the application that God has for us today as a church. We have to respond with faith. Now, what does that actually feel like and look like? Well, I'll close with a story from the good old days of COVID. You remember that thing? Quarantine, all that. So maybe two weeks into whatever month that was where we were all actually taking it pretty seriously, Meredith and I had been at home uh, quarantining, I guess, for two weeks, which was great. Um, actually, it wasn't that bad. It was actually pretty sweet for like the first week and a half. But then we began to, we began to get a little cabin fever after that. And our church, the mother church of this church, was doing some online services at the time. We didn't ultimately end up doing that many of them, but nobody knew, you know, trying to figure out what was going on at the time. So there was a Sunday where there was an online service, and we watched the online service in our pajamas and robe and whatever, and Meredith saw the pastors on the live stream, and she thought, man, they all look really depressed and really glum. And we all, I mean, I'm sure you had your own experience of this. We all felt depressed and glum. There was just a weight over our church, over our friends, over our marriage. It just felt like there was a black cloud over things at the time. Things felt bad. And Meredith's the kind of person that when, when things feel bad, she, like, I'm the kind of person, even when things feel good, I'd like to just sit around and be sad. Like, that's my favorite thing. But Meredith was like, we got to do something. And so she decides, she's like, I'm going to make donuts for all the pastors. And I'm going to drop them off to I'm like, honey, we're quarantining. You can't make food for them. That is she's like, I'll drop them off on their lawn and we'll wave at them. I'm like, okay, that sounds like a good plan. Um, we're going to cheer up all eight pa- I think the church had like eight pastors. I'm going to cheer them all up, she says. And this was before we had kids or anything. So there really wasn't anything better to do. She uh, spends the day, all Sunday from like 10 o'clock to 4 p.m. making these donuts. And they're like baked donuts. So not the highest tier of donut. <laughs> Final, and, and the, another thing you should know about Meredith is she does not test things when she's making them. Like she does not, when, when a recipe says like season to taste, she'll, she just like throws some stuff in there and does not, like she seasons, but she doesn't taste. But oftentimes she'll call me in to taste and I'll be like, well, did you try it? And she'll be like, no, no, you try it. And that never puts a strain on our marriage. Um, So anyways, she didn't even have me in. She just baked like 40 donuts for all the pastors in our church. And then she calls me in like after working all day and she's like, all right, here's the donuts. I want you to try one. And I don't even want to know if they're bad. I'm like okay, and so I take a bite of the donut, and you know, mm, mm, mm. and she's like, well, and I'm like, well, well, you don't want to know if they're bad, <laughs> and she's like, well, what's wrong? And I'm like, was, was there a little bit of uh, there's there's some there's some nutmeg in this? There's a, and she said, yeah, I put an extra nutmeg, and I said. It feels like there's kind of a lot of nutmeg, honey. That's because I put in extra nutmeg. Well, it kind of tastes a lot like um, nutmeg. Okay, can we go deliver them now? Well, I. It's a lot of nutmeg, honey. This turns into one of the biggest fights in our marriage. There's yelling, there's screaming. I don't think there's any throwing or anything like that, but it was bad. It was really bad. It was like two weeks of COVID pressure and us feeling bad and us being locked in the same house together and all this stuff just boiled over about these stupid donuts. And finally, it ends with her saying, nobody knows how to kill something that I'm trying to do like you. Nobody knows how to kill, kill something I'm excited about, like you do. You took my little lamb. You sacrificed him. You <laughs> ate him. He was all I had. <laughs> and she like runs out and goes in the bedroom and slams the door. And I just like curled into a ball I felt like garbage. I didn't know what I was... I mean, it was like, it sounds melodramatic now, I guess. But I was like, man, is our marriage going to recover from these nutmeg donuts? like, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. And like I said, maybe it sounds melodramatic, but maybe some of you have been here and you know the feeling. So I started praying and I was like, you know... God, I don't know how to be married. I don't know the first thing. I'm so proud. I thought I could get by on my wits and my in- emotional intelligence and stuff, but I can't now have these nutmeg donuts. Um, I don't know. God, please sanctify my marriage. I don't know how I'm getting out of the doghouse. And so I decide I have to do something. I I go to the bedroom. I knock on the door. There's silence on the other end of the door. And I sort of start talking and trying to, like, coax her out of the bedroom. And that takes, like, a half an hour. And then finally she comes out and she sits down and we talk. And we begin to feel a little bit better. And I said something really melodramatic, like, honey, I wouldn't blame you if you... Uh, never forgave me. I'm terrible at being married. I I have all these insecurities and I don't, uh, I I didn't know how to handle the donut thing and uh, I just, uh, if there's one thing I know, it's all God. God's the only thing that's going to make the marriage work. And she says, yes, and we're crying on the couch and everything. But we get to a place of peace about it. And we do decide it's all God. God is the only thing that's going to get us through this black weight that we feel. I mean, we can't even make donuts together without it turning into a disaster. It is all God. And finally, everything simmered down, and it was better. And Meredith was still sort of pouting a little bit, and she said, like, half as a joke, like, well, Nathan, how did it feel killing and eating my my little lamb. I said, well, at least it tasted better than those dumb donuts. (laughs) And then she murdered me. (laughs) It's too good of a line to pass up. Um, I think that is faith. I think that is what faith looks like. Hopefully, you're not as neurotic as Meredith and I are. Hopefully, things like that don't make you spiral. Hopefully, you don't bring shame and insecurities, all the stuff that went into the stupid nutmeg donuts along with the nutmeg. Faith is God does something like COVID, something like making the donuts not turn out the way you want them to. God interprets himself. You need to rely on me for your marriage because you stink. And then you respond with faith. You, you fail forward. You, you do the best you can. It's, it's messy. It doesn't always feel the way you want it to feel. But you keep trusting God and you keep taking the next right step. No matter how bad things are, you keep believing that God exists. Even though I can't see him, even though I do not feel him right now, God exists and he rewards those who seek him. As you have your arguments, as you you sin your sins, because you will, you are a sinner, as you make your mistakes, as you work things out with the people that you love, which also happen to be the people you can't stand sometimes, you have faith for that. You have faith. You keep moving forward and trusting God. That's faith. That's faith. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that we would have faith. I pray that we would trust you. I pray that our church would trust you. That we would look to you and believe that you are good. Believe that you are who you say you are. And that we would, in the mess and sin and everything in our lives that is, that is wrong, that we, that we have wrought, we would trust you to to work your goodwill. Thank you for your mercy, Father. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for everything that you carry us through. Um, thank you for all the times where it feels utterly hopeless and then we know that we come through to the other side. Thank you for, for being able to look back on those. We, we thank you and we, we praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.